Would you please pray with me? Lord, what a privilege it is to gather as your people as we cease from our work, come together, and hear your word and partake of the sacrament. It is good when believers dwell in unity. And Lord, we just pray now that you would pour out your spirit upon us. And from this familiar story, teach new truths in each and every one of our lives so that, oh God, you would be glorified in our midst and we'd be transformed by spending time with you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a tradition at Mantua Elementary School in Fairfax, Virginia, that if the classes were good, we got to see a movie, you know? So the teacher would tramp out the old 16-millimeter projector and show a Disney movie, a Disney documentary, something really wholesome and good, and we all looked forward to it. And so, don't screw it up for me, I used to say. Well, I want to see the movie. All right, and my best friend, Ricky, you know, we never got to do anything together. I mean, we, we played after school every day all our childhood, but we never got in the same classroom. We never got on the same ball team. We always were separated because I think the teachers knew better than to put us together, probably. But be it as it may, when it came to movie day for the whole six years I was in elementary school, every time our classes were paired and we got to watch movies together. So, you know, I'm in first grade. And I get to see Ricky, you know, so he comes over to my class and we give each other a big hug and he sits right down to me and it was awesome. And we got to watch The Incredible Journey, you know, 1963, this wonderful story about how this family, which had three animals, the father's favorite, the, the golden lab luau and the little girl's favorite, the Siamese cat. And Peter, the, the, the older brother of the little girl, and his favorite animal, Bodger, the bull terrier. Now, Bodger was old. He was getting up there, but he was still playful and what have you. Well, the father of this family was going to go to Oxford, England for a fellowship for a few months. And so their good friend, John, who was the godfather to the daughter, took the animals, because he was familiar with them, to his cabin 200 miles away in Canada, where they got out. And Luau honed in and said, it's time for us to go home. And they took a 200-mile journey through many obstacles, found their way home. I was thinking about this passage of Abraham, which I've preached on before, but I'm coming at it from a different angle today. Our lives are all journeys, and we face obstacles. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And, and, and Pete Scazzaro calls them walls, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the reality is we're all called to go on a journey, and when we hit the wall, go through the wall and not bounce off it or retreat from it. So I invite you to turn with me to Genesis 22 as we're going to look at the essence of the journey, the, the wall itself, and the wonder of the Lamb. The essence of the journey, the, the wall itself, or the journey to the wall, or through the wall, and then the wonder of the Lamb. 
Well, let's look at first the journey that we're all on. First, our journey always starts with knowing and receiving Christ and His Savior and His Lord. When you're a Christian, you, you hear the call and you receive Him. But it's not just that first time initial receiving Him, right? The call keeps coming. You keep hearing it. Like Luau had the call to go home, and those three never did anything apart. So they, they went on their journey. We are called to follow Christ. It's not only how you get in the kingdom and you have salvation, you hear the call, know more and more and know him and follow him and grow in him. And you increase in your prayer life, you increase in your service and your ministry, and you go deeper and deeper in your call. And the essence of that call, what does it mean to hear it and rehear it over and over? Well, the essence of the call is, is like Martin Lloyd-Jones. The essence of the journey, if you will. Responding to the Lord's call. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a 1920s prominent doctor. He was in his 20s in the 20s. Things looked great. Things were going great for him. He was on staff at St. Bartholomew Hospital as an assistant to the most prominent physician in all of Great Britain. Everything looked great. He had tremendous prospects. But he was religiously indifferent. Till one day, one of the chiefs of the departments of the medicine there at St. Bartholomew's, who had everything the world could offer him, everything, success, material, beautiful wife, beautiful, actually it wasn't a wife, he was dating a woman, and suddenly that woman died. He walked into Lloyd-Jones' room, with his dazed eyes and says, can I sit by your fire? And Lloyd-Jones said, of course, come in. He sat down and for two hours just stared at the fire. And it shook Lloyd-Jones to the core. Not because the man was acting inappropriately. It is devastating to experience the loss of someone you love. Grief is devastating. But Lloyd-Jones was shaken because he looked at the man who had everything the world could ask for. Everything the world could offer. He suddenly realized that even the most powerful people, the most put-together people, the most prosperous people, no matter who you were, the foundations of your security are radically vulnerable and fragile. And so Lloyd-Jones says in his testimony, when he watched that man staring at the fire, he suddenly realized the vanity of all human greatness. And so when Lloyd-Jones watched that man stare in the fire, he began to be prompted that there's something more to this life. And it was the beginning of his journey, answering the call to follow Christ. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when called to go, obeyed and went. For he was looking forward to the city with its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So here's the call to go on your journey. You begin to sense the call of God when you realize that without God, there are no foundations that this world gives you. Many, many people have watched someone grieve. 
But as Lloyd-Jones watched that man experience grief, knowing who he was, Lloyd-Jones began to hear the call to follow Christ, that all the foundations of this world pale in comparison to knowing and following Jesus Christ. Now, there are many people around us, very nice people scattered all over the West Shore, who, respectful of us Christians, but when push comes to shove, they all think it's just a little ridiculous and you're taking this thing a little too seriously. Everything in our cultures and value, that our culture values is antithetical to what's going on here in Genesis 22. Every person, though, if you think, when you think you're religious or not, has something or some things so profoundly important to you, to your self-image, to your hope, your joy, that they can be said are the object of your worship. They're the object of your soul's faith. No matter who anybody is, when they say, I'm not a religious person, there's no such thing as a truly non-religious person. Because there are certain things in your life or a certain thing in your life that if you don't have it, you cannot live joyfully. You have no meaning in life. You have no significance and no security. And that's the object of your soul's deepest faith. And you're religious. We're all religious. But when you begin to realize that whatever that thing is, it's passing away. Life is coming for it. And life is going to strip me of it. And it doesn't matter whether it's your family, whether your youth and your looks, your financial portfolio, your health. It doesn't matter what it is. When you begin to realize that everything that means most to you is washing away because you're standing on a sandbar and the water is rising. When you begin to sense that, there are no foundations truly for what you believe and hold important in life, significant in life. You're hearing the call of God. And so no matter where we are, whether we're non-Christian, beginning Christian, progressing Christian, seasoned Christian, the essence of the call begins with that realization that doesn't matter whether you're nice, you go to church, whether you have memorized all the wonderful doctrine of the 39 articles, what matters is that we realize that all the foundations of this world are passing away. What matters is Christ. And we can't do this on our own without him. That's the essence of the journey that God calls us to. Secondly, we see the wall itself. When I use the word wall... What I'm referring to is catastrophic life events, things such as the death of a loved one. You get sick. You, you lose your health. Uh, financial ruin. Career stagnation. Earth-shattering events that happen to us. And if God is a sovereign God and who he is, it means either he is bringing them or he is allowing it. And we all have walls. This is not like trials. Trials are problems of our world that we all have. You know, you, you run out of window washer fluid in a snowstorm. 
You know, that's a trial. Getting stuck in traffic is a trial. You know, having dandelions in your yard in the springtime, that's a trial. And, and James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, my brothers, right? Okay, those are trials. Those things are going to happen, and so we count them joy, you know. Doesn't mean you're happy about it, but, you know, just okay. God's in control. No, this, these, are, these are walls which God calls us to enter in. And Abraham has had four walls previous to chapter 22. All right, we've walked through these, but let me give you a refresher. You remember Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is called to go to a land where I will show you. Where are we going, Lord? I will show you. You didn't say where we're going. I know. I will show you. See, he has no clue. Pack your bags, Abe. You're going. All right? That's a wall. And because of his faithfulness, because God is creating a man of faith, and it's through this man the nations are going to be blessed. Chapter 13, he has a conflict with his nephew Lot. His wor- Lot's workers and Abraham's workers simply can't get along. It's like the jets and the sharks. They're fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. They have to separate from his nephew, and he loves Lot. Conflict, awful, but he had to push through that. Genesis 14, dealing with Sarah's infertility. Lord, you promised that you would bring a child through all the nations will be blessed, and she isn't becoming pregnant. It's been 20 years now, Lord. You know, he had to push through that wall. And, and Sarah got a little sick of it and realized she was getting older, and she just uh, brought Hagar into the scene, and Hagar got pregnant like that. Brought in Ishmael, which brought great marital tension between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. And it was just awful. And now this. I mean, if, if, if I'm Abraham at this stage and he tells me to take my son, my only son, the child of the promise, and, and sacrifice him on the altar, I'm probably saying, Lord, haven't I been through enough? I believe you. I trust you. I'm following you. Wherever you want me to go. Haven't I been through enough? Regardless of how you get there regardless of how long it takes you to get there, every disciple of Jesus Christ is going to encounter a wall. doesn't matter whether you're a beginning Christian, a progressing Christian, or a seasoned Christian. We all encounter what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. And God calls us to enter into it and go through it. And so we hear this story, and Gerhard von Rad, that great uh, German commentator, says, Unfortunately, one can only answer all plaintive scruples about this narrative by saying that it concerns something much more frightful than a child's sacrifice. Well, what can be more frightful than sacrificing a child? See, this has to do with the journey that Abraham's being called to go on. He's calling Abraham to enter into utter God-forsakenness. This is a test. It says, verse 1, God tested Abraham. God is confronting Abraham with the question of whether he's willing to give up God's very gift of promise. 
God appears, appears to Abraham to want to remove the salvation begun by himself in history. So what's actually happening with the real horror here of this test is how can a God in this be holy and gracious? The result is through the wonder of the Lamb. Let's look at this. Everyone who reads this passage, everyone who studies this passage and the scholars of this passage, there's a fascinating place in verse 2 when he says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then Abraham gets up the next morning, saddles his donkey, takes Isaac with him, and it slows down in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. You see, you know, Abraham, you know, we don't know exactly Isaac's age. He's anywhere between probably 12 to 19. But this is one good, obedient boy. It's amazing. And so he takes all the dangerous stuff. He's got the, he's got the torch, which is lit. And he's got the knife. Here, son, you carry the wood. And this is the only place in all the Bible where, where you hear Abraham and Isaac speaking to one another. And suddenly Isaac says in verse 7, My father, and he says, here I am. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb? For the burnt offering. So what did Abraham answer him? When he, when he pushed into that wall. Was he going into that wall saying, I can do this. I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to muster it up. I must. I must do it. No, that's not, not what Abraham's clinging to at all. That's not in his heart. What's driving him in and through this wall, up that mountain. Verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them, they went both of them together. God will do it. God will see to it. God will provide the lamb. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't know, Isaac. And the word literally here, provide, means to see or to see to. So here's what Abraham is saying. My son, you can't see the lamb. I can't see the lamb. But God will see to the lamb. What he's really saying is, I don't know how God is going to be both holy and gracious in this sacrifice he's called us to. I don't know how he's going to be holy and gracious. Have this sin, this debt of sin paid. And still be the God of promise. How is he going to be the God of promise if the child of the promise is, is eliminated? 
He said, through Isaac will the world be saved. I don't know, but he'll do it. Scholars debate. We know in Hebrews it's written that Abraham believed, even if he went through with it, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. We don't know, but he's absolutely trusting. And that's not what's getting him through the wall. What's getting him through this wall is not mustering up his own strength. What's mustering, what he's doing is looking at Abraham's little lamb couldn't have paid the price. Ultimately, Isaac couldn't have paid the price for Abraham's family's sin. He was an imperfect child, okay? So, of course, we have the ram that's caught in the bushes. How does that pay for sin? Because we know in the book of Hebrews, it says, the blood of bulls and goats does not atone for sin. Well, then why did Abraham have to do it? Second Chronicles has this fascinating little spot where it tells us that the mountains and the hills around Jerusalem, the place where Jerusalem is built, eventually was built and still resides, are the mountains of Moriah. It means the temple. It means Calvary. We're all part of the mountains of Moriah. So here's what we know. Why didn't Abraham have to bring his hand down on his son? How could God be both holy and gracious, a God of justice and command and a God of grace and promise? How could he do this? Because centuries later, our heavenly father led his beloved son into the same mountains. The one and only son was put on the wood again. Think about that. Ed Clowney says that when, when the ultimate beloved child cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father paid the price in his silence. Paul applies Genesis 22 to Romans 8.32 where Paul says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Here's the wonder of the Lamb, and it's theological and it's practical. First of all, theological. In our culture, in the church today, you have a smaller, decreasing segment of religious moralists. They've reduced the Christian faith down to mere morality. And they're not like Abraham. <laughs> Their traditional moralism says if you obey God, God will bless you. And therefore, to the command, go and sacrifice your son, there's no way a traditional moral person is going to do that. He would have given up. I'm not going to do that. I can't. He, wouldn't, he couldn't go up the mountain without hope. Then on the other hand, in our culture, even within the church, you have the revisionists who believe this is just one way of many and it's a post-truth culture. Therefore, you can't inform them that what they believe is untrue because <laughs> it's a contradictory statement to say that all truths are equal. And they wouldn't even take a step toward the mountain. They would say, I don't owe you this. I'm not a sinner. 
But the reality is, when you believe in what Jesus has done on the cross, when you understand that not only does the lamb, the true lamb, the lamb that Abraham knew must be out there somewhere that God must provide is the answer. That's the theological issue. Practical issue. How can you really become and push through the wall like Abraham does here and be a disciple like Abraham in this way? Again, over and over in our lives, life is coming at us and we will encounter walls. It's going to happen. Some of you, it's, all, it's happening now. And if you're old enough, you certainly will see it. And if you're unlucky enough, you'll get it when you're a teenager. But eventually the world comes in and takes everything. Everything that you say is my worth. This is my significance. This is my joy. And everything will be taken from us bit by bit by bit. But when we say to God, you are my hope. You are my love. You are my approval. You are my greatest joy. How do you get to that point? Well, the preacher tells you and you say, well, that's night. I'll, I'll trust in that. I can get up on that mountain, my life will be perfect. Well, that's not how it works. How it works is how we have this story. And we have this story that's pointed back to in both Hebrews and Romans, where we can have some true human understanding of what the Father did in the Son. If Abraham had been at the foot of Calvary, the moment Jesus died, he would have taken the words of verse 12. You know, and do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Those words would have come back to Abraham and said, I get it. Now I know. Now I know you love me and all who trust you because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love for me. How do you know God loves you and values you, values you? Delights in you so much that you can really rest and be free from the enslavement of other people? Enslavement to situations? Enslavement to circumstances? How do you know that he loves you like this? It's because he loves me. Because he loves his son. You did not withhold your only son whom you love for me. And what happens when you really trust that to your core? You enter into that wall. Your pride is stripped. Your priorities rearranged. Your, path, your false glories are, 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 are purged. Your false salvations. Because at the wall, we learn what true faith is from God. And trusting him. Even when we don't feel him. Even when we don't understand. And we surrender to God's work in us. And to refuse. Because people do that. I don't know where Scazzaro got the statistic. But he said 85% of Bible-believing evangelicals do not push through the wall. 
They bounce off the wall. And they stay in these elementary phases of the Christian faith. They know a little bit, just enough to be dangerous. They serve a little bit. But they never experience transformation. And they still struggle over and over and over with the same things. Because they never really push through the wall. But it's at the wall we learn to truly trust him. And to not do so results in long-term pain and absolute confusion. And the reality is we'll never be like Abraham if we don't push through the wall. Unless we see the ultimate offering for you of the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And that will change you naturally. You see, it's a spiritual, incredible journey. The wonderful thing I love about that movie is the three animals have walls. <laughs> they have to take on a bear. You know, I remember being absolutely terrified as a seven-year-old watching that movie because a bear was going to come because Bodger, Bodger was dying. Bodger couldn't make it. He's old, man. You, imagine if you at, at, at 75 had to walk 200 miles through the wilderness. And that's, what, that's how Disney brought it out. The old guy just wasn't doing well. And so the bear was coming for him. The cat fights for him. <laughs> you know, what is this little thing the bear says? The golden retriever comes and barks at him and spooks the bear away. They hang together. They're hungry. They're thirsty. Get attacked by a porcupine. <laughs> it's terrible. But the ending is like coming home. The family has come to the resolve as they come back from England. And their friend John says, I don't know where they went. I'm sorry. They just escaped. The dad says, well, you know, nothing we can do. If any of them would survive, it would be Luau, the golden retriever. And they got a report that Luau was spotted 40 miles away. But that was the most difficult part of the journey. It was the last 40 miles. The end of the movie, all of a sudden at Peter's birthday party, they hear a bark. And the dad whistles like he's always whistled. And out from the woods into the clearing comes Luau, sprinting at full speed to his master's voice. And it's just a wonderful reunion. The family's so excited. They run out into the clearing and they greet him. It's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, if you can believe it, the Siamese cat starts meowing. <laughs> and here she comes. The cat's flying, just, just sprinting through the clearing. You know, they couldn't believe it. They didn't think Teo and Bodger would make it, but Luau might. But here's Teo. She made it. Amazing. And so the little girl was just thrilled. It was her, her lovely kitty, her, her best friend, just reunited once again. And to a little seven-year-old Jean Sherman, I'm sitting there crying because Bodger didn't make it. There's no way he made it. He couldn't make it. And Walt Disney made that feel like an hour. And my friend Ricky goes, what's the matter with you? You know, he isn't going to make it, you know. And then all of a sudden, you hear this, move, move. 
And out from the woods comes the 10, 12-year-old Bodger. And Peter goes, Bodger! And the dog tackles him. That would have been abuse today. You know, just the dog just bowls him over. And it's a great reunion. And the narrator says, and they came to the end of the incredible journey. Once again, a family. My friends, in Christ, you and I have begun this journey in this kingdom. And we're on our way home. And we are going to face these walls. Go through them. We're with you. We're together. And as we persevere and our priorities are reoriented, our passions are changed, we come out beautiful. And we'll be reunited. And we'll look back and we'll be able to look at one another and say, that was an incredible journey. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we, we ask you to come and teach each and every one of us to trust you even when we do not know where you are leading us or where you are going. Help us to surrender and, and not reel back from the walls of our lives out of fear and recognize that while there might be storms and winds around us, you are centered, utterly at rest in the peace of the storms of our lives and the walls that we encounter. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, that we might see you as we encounter various walls of our lives. And we can see that you are the God who provides. You're the God who sees to it. Ultimately, our salvation for our good, for all things work for the good for those who love God and are called according to your purpose. And we thank you that you and your son were the only ones who ever really had the full horror of the ultimate wall, the ultimate test come down on them. And Lord Jesus, you passed that test for us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you walked up that mountain with your beloved son. You laid him on the wood, and there was no way anyone could stop you. You knew it, and you did it. And we thank you, Father, that you did that for us. And we pray that you would give us the knowledge that would transform us in the walls of our lives. Help us to see, like Abraham, that you are the God of grace and holiness. Command and promise. Because if we don't know both of them, then the meaning of the sacrifice your son will never change us and make us into the creations you call us to be. And we pray that you would affect all of this in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let us stand and affirm our faith in the words of the apostles.